And let me pray as we come before the word this morning. Lord and our God, we, even as we just sung, we want to see you. We long for that. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us even this morning in the text that we read and that we preach, that we listen to. Father, we confess that we have minds that quickly wander, we have ears that are quickly stopped up, we have hearts that are often hard. By the power of your Spirit, would you stop all that from being the case this morning? May we find that the eyes of our hearts are open, that we get a glimpse of you, our Lord and our God. Work in our midst, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, this is the holy and errant word of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we come to the close of the Beatitudes this morning. We have been through five of them, and this morning we'll look at these final three Beatitudes. It seems to me, as we look at these final three Beatitudes, they're really focused on what it looks like for the Christian to live in this world. That is, as we're walking through this world, these are different things that are coming to bear and things that are to mark the Christian as we walk through this world. As you think about it, Christians are very strange in this world. Uh, we look strange, we act strange, we talk strange, or at least we should to those that are not part of the kingdom of Christ. We're strange because though we have our feet firmly planted here on earth, we have our souls and our hearts and our minds and our affections firmly planted in heaven. And so we're citizens of this world, and yet we're citizens of the world to come. We walk here on earth, and yet our eyes are set on glory. And so we should look different from those around us that aren't such as we are. And these three Beatitudes, uh, I think especially, mark what it looks like for a Christian to walk through this world. They are marked by purity and by peace and by persecution. I want to look at those three this morning. The first of the three in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, purity of heart in the Scriptures has two different senses. It, it can be taken in the Scriptures. It can have the sense of that inward purity that is reflected in our outward obedience or outward behavior. That is, that there's no hypocrisy in the person, that as they seek to live, so it is true of them in their hearts. What they look like on the outside is what dominates them on the inside. There's no hypocrisy here in the person. 
It is uh, an old word that was often used uh, to speak of Christians. It is piety. It's a word that I love, a word that I wish that we would bring back, that inward piety. For example, when Israel is told to circumcise their hearts and not simply their flesh, or when Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's the same idea when Paul says to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. There there is an inward piety, a holiness within. I like that word piety because it speaks of the whole life, not just what you and I do, but who we are. It marks us. Not just our outward obedience, not just our attendance at church, not just our reading of the Scriptures, not just our praying prayers over dinner. Jesus reserved the greatest rebukes for those that were just righteous outwardly. We're concerned just about holiness on the outside. And the Pharisees he condemned because they said, he said, you are just concerned about the cleanliness of the outside of the cup, of the dishes, but not the heart. They loved the religious life. They loved the life of rules, and they loved the life of laws, and they loved the life of regulations, but they did not tend to the garden of their own heart, and so there were all kinds of weeds that had grown up in it and had taken it over. The Christian faith, it emphasizes outward obedience and purity, but only as it flows from the heart. That's the center of our being. It is no Christian life if it is a life void of a heart-gripped, warm, personal piety. There is spiritual vitality in the Christian, Jesus is saying with this beatitude. It marks them. Not just following laws, but a a spiritual vitality flowing from the core of their inner person, their being, that then influences how they live and look. Flows from within. So the heart, so the man. Do you remember what the Lord said to Samuel when Samuel was looking for that next king of Israel and He said, for the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The heart matters to God, and so the heart is what matters to the Christian. The second sense of purity in heart, as it is understood in Scripture, is that a a person is single-minded. They're not chasing after God and something else. The Christian knows that we can't have two masters because you'll forsake the one to serve the other. You can't have two. You can't have a divided heart. You can't have a divided mind. So a purity of heart is pursuing God above all else. Maybe David describes it best, this sense in Psalm 24, when he says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. It's that person that David says in Psalm 24 that has the privilege of going up on the mountain and meeting with God. 
being with him, of being in his presence. This person that has a singularity of focus. I think, though, there are both of these senses in the Scripture in purity of heart, this, this idea of flowing from the heart and that there is not a hypocrisy about our lives, and yet there is also this singleness of mind. Though there are both of these senses, I don't think we have to rule one or the other out with Jesus here in the Beatitude. I think they inform one another. They go hand in hand together. When we have singleness of mind, God above all else, piety wells up within us. And when God is at the center of the pious person's life, there's a singleness of mind that is set upon God, then there's piety. They go together. And Jesus is saying, this is what marks the Christian. What's the promise attached to this beatitude? that those who are pure in heart shall see God. Shall see God. And when Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden and they chose to rebel against God, and they fell and all of mankind fell with them, the great loss was their banishment from the garden. That was the great loss. Why? Because they who had walked with God in the cool of the day, who had known fellowship with Him, and who had seen Him, and had sweet communion with Him all the days of their life, now no longer were with Him, no longer in His presence, no longer walking with Him, could no longer see Him. This is the great loss. But the pure in heart shall see God, he says does that mean? Well, the Scriptures are clear that the pure in heart see God now. We see in the Old Testament that the prophets will often have a vision of God and see Him in His glory. Or the writer of Hebrews will say that Moses saw the invisible God. And there is that sense in Scripture, but I think there is even more than that. In some sense, the vision of God that people longed for came when Christ Jesus came into this world. John echoes this idea when he says at the beginning of his gospel, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus will acknowledge this when Philip comes to him in John 14 and says, Show us the Father. Jesus will say, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So in a very real sense, God reveals Himself in the person of Christ. As we see Christ, we see God. As we gaze upon Christ, we gaze upon God. As we come to know the beauty of Christ, we come to know the beauty of God. And so the Christian can say that he or she has seen God. We've seen Christ, as Paul says, with the eyes of our heart, with the eyes of faith. We know Christ, so we know God. We've seen Christ, so we've seen God. We've seen Him with the eyes of faith. In one very real sense, seeing God is already the possession of the Christian. And yet, it is not what we shall see someday. 
The Apostle Paul, uh, John says there in 1 John, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. You are now. But he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we shall see him as he is because we shall be made like him. We'll see him in all of his glory. And John adds, interestingly enough, immediately after that, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Surely with this beatitude going around in his mind as he's writing that. Someone here in the church, uh, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, they asked me, they said, Jason, what is, what is the greatest motivation for you in the Christian life? Good question. He said, when your heart or your mind or your soul seems to be wandering, what is it that you think about? What is it that you focus on that, that you do to stir yourself for Christ? And I said, it's this. That I want to see Christ. I want to see Him. What has been called the beatific vision in the history of the church, that day when Christians shall appear before His throne and we shall get a full view, uninterrupted, unadulterated view of the glory of Christ. That's what I long for more than anything else. I want to see Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And in the context there, that holiness is not that imputed righteousness that is given to us in Christ. Rather, it is that holiness that comes in sanctification, in the context of sanctification that he's speaking about. He's saying, if you would see God, you must pursue this holiness. The Christian is to be marked by holiness because they serve a holy God. Not perfect but continually growing, seeking purity, because the greatest of all gifts awaits them. An unfading, unadulterated sight of God. This has been the great pursuit of every Christian in every age. In fact, we could say that this is the great end of our entire Christian faith. To see God. You need to motivate your heart. You and I constantly do. Because we're still wrestling with this flesh and with sin and with our adversary. So you should think about this a lot. You should call this to mind a lot, Christian. You stir yourself with it. Imagine what a sight it will be. See Christ clothed with our humanity, seated enthroned above, with angels before him that are singing his praise, an angel hovering there and an angel prostrate here. But he's the focus. Everything aimed at him, this glorious one. 
Just think how lovely God is to us now as a Christian in His Word and in prayer and in the sacraments. And yet through these, we just look through a mirror that is dimly lit, the Apostle Paul says. But then we'll look at Him face to face. The glory awaits. The sight awaits. I think of Christ transfigured there on the mountain and, and he takes Peter and James and John up there with him on that mountain. When Peter gets a glimpse of the full glory of Christ on that mountain, he's ready to pitch a tent and camp out for all of eternity. Let's pitch tents. I mean, it had to be a pretty good sight if you're going to camp out for all of eternity. That's what he wants to do. And yet what they saw in the transfiguration will pale in comparison to what we see in glory. John tells us he will sit there with eyes like a flame of fire and the sound of his voice will be like the running of waters that in his right hand he will hold stars. He says that his face will shine like that of the sun in full strength. I want to be there. I want to see him. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, wrote this about the beatific vision. He said, there will be glory beyond hyperbole. I like that. There will be glory beyond hyperbole. How about that for hyperbole? He says, if the sun were 10,000 times brighter than it is, it could not so much as shadow out this glory. In the heavenly horizon, we shall behold beauty in its first magnitude and highest elevation. There we shall see the King in His glory. And then he says this, which I love. All lights are but eclipses compared with this glorious vision. What a promise. What a promise to those who are pure in heart, who have this singleness of mind and seek to have a heart that, that is filled with holiness and righteousness and their outward behavior conforms to it. What a promise. If you need a spur to pursue God in purity, this is it. See Christ in all of His glory. So you think about it often. Second beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know this peace is a constant theme throughout the Scriptures. Shalom will become a word that the Jews will use as they speak to one another. Uh, Paul, when he's writing, both at the beginning of letters and at the end of letters, he will often say grace and peace, grace and peace to you. We have a God that is concerned with peace. We're told that the Messiah who will come will bear this very name, the Prince of Peace. God is so concerned with peace that He will send His Son into this world to purchase peace between Himself and sinful men. 
And even beyond that, Ephesians 2 will say that Christ came into the world to break down that wall of hostility between men, between Jew and Gentile. Why? So there might be peace. He's the Prince of Peace. We serve a Christ who loves peace. We serve a Father who is a God of peace. And so His people are a people of peace. Not just peaceful, but peacemaking, Jesus says. Peacemakers. Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. The Christian is to be marked by peacemaking, making peace, extending peace. How? Well, ultimately, by sharing the gospel. As the gospel is embraced, peace is a result. If you and I would see wars end and conflict end and tension end and injustice end and discrimination end and abuse end, and you name it, it will come as a fruit of the gospel. But it's not just something the Christian pursues externally. It's something they pursue internally. Peace is not just something we seek to see fulfilled around us, but in us. And so we guard ourselves. And in this way, we show that we are peacemakers. What is it that destroys peace among us? Well, James answers that question, doesn't he? He says, is it not this that your passions rule in you. That is that you and I demand, we, we must have something. It is required. That passion has welled up within us, and so that passion overtakes us, and it diffuses out. It, it, it makes the love that we have for one another scurry and run and hide. And we demand. And demand causes discontentment. And we envy, and so so is bitterness. Sin within causes conflict without. So if we think back to the beginning of the Beatitudes, you think at the very beginning, the Christian is poor in spirit and mourns for their sins. In essence, what Jesus is saying is that the Christian understands who they are, and because of that, they understand that they deserve nothing. There are no rights and there are no privileges to stand on, no demands to make upon God or others, and that leads to making peace. We're operating from a different starting point than, than poverty of spirit. We'll, we'll be judgmental of those around us. We're very quick. We're very quick to act like judge and jury in a moment. Ridicule or even hatred will form in our minds and our hearts and we'll interpret the thoughts and the intentions of others. We'll do it quickly. It is so uncanny how quickly we will assume the worst of others and we'll make a negative assessment of them. When we're not starting from our own poverty of spirit. I was thinking about this this week and Knowing my own heart. And I thought, if you and I are looking for some reason, for some reason to 
question someone or question someone's ministry or question someone's character, we'll find it. Whether it's legitimate or not, we'll find it. It doesn't take much. That's not the way of the peacemaker. It's not the way of the Christian. There is charity. There's a desire and there's an aim and a pursuit of considering others better than ourselves. It isn't divorce from righteousness. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. So this isn't appeasement. But it does mean being selfless. It does mean looking to the interests of others before our own. It does mean seeing ourselves as a servant of others, first and foremost. And not standing upon our rights and our privileges. No, we're seeking to live at peace with everyone because this is the very work of our Lord and our Savior that He came into the world to do, to bring peace. And we want to look like Him. We want to be like Him. And that's why the promise attached to this beatitude is that we'll be called the sons of God. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, he said, if God stood upon His rights and dignity upon His person, every one of us and the whole of mankind would be consigned to hell in absolute perdition. It is because God is a God of peace that He sent His Son and thus provided a way of salvation for us to be a peacemaker is to be like God and like the Son of God. To be like the one who is called the Prince of Peace. If there is conflict constantly around you, you have some thinking to do, some self examination. We make peace as Christians. There's this common misconception that, that everyone in this world is a child of God. That's not biblical language. In the Bible, the children of God are those that are in covenant relationship with Him. So the Assyrians are never the children of God. The Phoenicians are never the children of God. The Babylonians are surely never the children of God. Israel alone is the children of God in the Old Testament because they were in covenant relationship with God. And so now it is true of the Christian. They're marked by peacemaking, the Christian. They look like their Savior and they reflect their heavenly Father. And so they are, great, they are granted the greatest title in all of the created realm, children of God. It's a greater title than all of the stars, than all of the moons that are out there, than even the title given to the sun. It's a title that is greater than that which the angels have, or even the archangels. We have the title of sons. Which means that His particular sovereign, divine love is aimed at us in a way that surpasses the love that is aimed at anything else. We're part of His family. We have an inheritance. 
We sang it this morning. It's to me one of the most striking verses of any hymn. Uh, bold, we approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ, my own. Thought about that when you sing that? You're claiming the crown of Christ? How dare you? Except it's yours. It's yours as a son. His inheritance is your inheritance. As a Christian, you're a son of God. There's no title like it. The Christian is marked by purity and by peacemaking and the final beatitude, persecution. Being persecuted is as much a mark of the Christian as hungering and thirsting after righteousness, as poverty in spirit, as being merciful. And Jesus didn't hide this from His disciples. He said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If the Christian was in lockstep with the world, then there would be no persecution of the Christian. But we're not. Because we're otherworldly, and the world doesn't like that. And so the Christian experiences the same path as their Lord. Before there is glory, there's persecution. Before there's rest, there's opposition. Abel was persecuted by Cain. David was persecuted by Saul. James was persecuted by Herod. Paul will be persecuted by the Ephesians, and so on and so on it goes. But they were not persecuted because they were obnoxious, or because they were fanatics, or because they were browbeaters. There's no blessing for that. Now, Jesus says, you and I are to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Notice what Jesus says the Christian is persecuted for. That there's a blessing for being persecuted for, he says, righteousness sake. For righteousness sake. That is, that as you and I live, that as we talk, as we walk, as Christians, the world doesn't like it. Why? Because we look like Christ who the world doesn't like. And we remind those that are outside of the kingdom, we remind them of their own conscience, and we remind them that they are in disobedience to God and rebellion against God, and they don't like it. So we should expect persecution, Jesus says. That marks the Christian. It's interesting here in verse 10. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But then in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, look, the, the righteous life, the righteous life of the Christian is a life that is modeled on my life. That is lived for my sake. It's actually a claim to divinity here. Because what were the prophets persecuted for? They were persecuted for their faithfulness to God. What are the disciples persecuted for? For their faithfulness to Christ. As you look like me, Jesus says, you will be persecuted. There's a cost to following Christ. 
And it seems like, I think we continue to pray against it. It seems like there will be a greater and greater cost in our own society in the years and decades ahead. And there's a number of you that have come to me personally over the last year or have come to the session with concern because you face some extreme trials in the workplace because you've dared to stand upon the truth of Christ. And you're not up with the whole new sexual ethic. And you're being persecuted for it. But you were not the first. And you won't be the last. You know, Christians in the past have lived with this reality. And many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world are living with this reality in a much stronger way than, than we can even imagine in this country. It's not easy to endure persecution. Jesus isn't saying that. Being reviled and people saying false things about you and gossiping about you and losing your job, it's not a welcome friend. But the Christian understands that before glory there is suffering. As it was true of our Savior, so it's true of His people. God forbid it, but physical harm is a reality for many Christians around the world. And it could become a reality for us. Imprisonment may be in our future. Surely ridicule and character assassination will only increase for Christians in this country. We don't seek it. We don't even welcome it. But we should expect it. Why? So that we're ready. So that we're ready, so that we will be willing to look like a Christian and think like a Christian and act like a Christian and talk like a Christian even when it costs. Most Christians through the ages have not enjoyed the luxuries you and I have. Not enjoyed quite the quiet life that we have. You know, the early church, they expected to be persecuted. They knew the day that they proclaimed their faith in Christ, they had set themselves up for a life of suffering. Paul will go so far as to say this. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. If we share in His life, we also share in His suffering." And Jesus says this about it. He says we can rejoice in this. This has to be one of the strangest things for the world to understand. How can Daniel, though he's in the lion's den, can pray all night to the same God who put him there? How can Paul and Silas, being in a prison, sing hymns all through the night to their God? How is that? How is it that Polycarp, an early Christian martyr, martyr and father of the church at 86 years old, is standing in a coliseum with people crying out for his death, and that Roman official appears before him and says, I have lions over here and I have fire over here. All you need to do is bow. Bow and yield yourself to Caesar and call him Lord. 
And Polycarp, at 86 years old, can say, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? And they light him on fire. How can Latimer and Ridley, martyrs during the reign of Queen Mary, Bloody Mary as she's been known in history, and Latimer and Ridley, when they are bound to those stakes back to back, and there is fire that is, sat, that is set underneath them, and the wood that is underneath them. How is it that Latimer can turn to his younger colleague Ridley, turn his head, and say to him, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Rejoicing in lion's dens, singing in prisons, offering joyous, comforting words as fire is being lit to you. How? Because the Christian knows their king sits enthroned above and they know the promise of the kingdom of heaven that is before them. They know. Christ hasn't vacated his throne. Nothing occurs by chance or by accident. The Christian has the greatest of all comfort. Whatever befalls us, we know that this is His will in this moment, and we know it is holy and it is good. Though we may not understand it, we can rest in it. Though we may not know why God has ordained this or that, we can take comfort in knowing He has. For He's good, and He's good towards His people. They're His sons. The reward is great. The Christian knows the promise of the kingdom of heaven before them. Unfading glory. Unfailing love. Undiminished joy. Unmixed happiness. Absolute unending peace. So if we have to face a few days or a few weeks or a few months or a few years or even a few decades, we know that it cannot and shall not compare to an eternity of peace with Him. Not a lion's den, not a jail cell, not even being burnt at the stake. None of that can extinguish that burning hope that the Christian has. So the Christian endures in the present by reminding themselves of what awaits them in the future. The greatest of all blessings. As we come to the close of these Beatitudes, we have to ask ourselves, not thinking about other people in your heads, yourself. Do these characteristics mark me? If the answer is no, you have some real searching to do. Are you a Christian? If you look at them and you say these Beatitudes 
are there, but not there as I would like to see them there, then you're probably a Christian. Because as you began, we are poor in spirit. And you mourn over your sin. You are not what you want to be, and you are not what you shall be someday. And so we pray. We pray, Lord, increase these characteristics in me. The world would turn all of these eight beatitudes, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the hungrier and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness, sake. they would turn all of those on their head. They would offer you the exact opposite and say the exact opposite is the blessed life. But the Christian understands that this is the blessed life. And so we pray for an increase. Oh, Lord, give me an increase. Because I want the blessed life. If you pray to be marked by these things, you do if you want the blessed life. You do if you're a Christian. Let's pray together. Lord and our God, we are thankful that you are a God of blessing and a God of promise. We're thankful that you've set before us yourself. And you've given us the promise of a sight of you as sons of yours in the kingdom forevermore. Oh, may that be great encouragement to us to stir us on in the faith and in godliness to live as Christians in this world with our eyes set on glory. That's not true of some of us this morning. We pray that there would be conviction. We pray that we wouldn't be able to get these thoughts out of our head until we have bowed our knees before you this day, yielded ourselves unto you, recognized our poverty of spirit, mourned for our sins, and then receive the blessing of being sons of yours, not for a moment, not for an age, but for all of eternity. I pray this in the strong name of Christ our Lord and our Savior.